All right, let's turn, please, to Romans chapter 8. And you'll note that on the information table, there is part one of a doctrine of, I call it promeity, it's probably promeity. And for the me generation, and you, you can remember that, pro-me-ity, pro-me-ity. I couldn't find a pronunciation guide to it because it doesn't exist on Google, I guess, or whatever it is. So, But they did have aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, which is related to it, and they pronounced it as aseity. So, promeity, promeity. Tonight I want to speak on the second, really, if it comes together as a doctrine, and it will come together as a doctrine. I'm going to try to reformulate it when we get into more in earnest in theology itself. But tonight we'll be speaking of divine promeity as the foundation of hope and as the foundation of the divine purpose. Though we'll begin with Romans 8.18, our focal verse will be primarily Romans 8.28 a verse that is famously quoted, but perhaps not understood in the depth that the Holy Spirit will grant us insight into tonight. So let's take a couple of moments in which we can shift gears, be receptive to what the Spirit is saying to the church. Father, we're very grateful that you are consistently pouring out your grace and a spirit of grace and supplication on this generation, on this particular phalanx of the body of Christ. We're so very grateful and that you have made us available to receive insights from the Holy Spirit. For that, we're exceedingly grateful recognizing our own helplessness and leaning to our own understanding, we come to you in trust with all of our hearts that you will educate us as to the hope that the Spirit is causing to overflow in us. May that hope overflow not only in us, but through us and be contagious to others. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Divine Promeity, P-R-O-M-E-I-T-Y, based on the premise that the name God is equal to the name God for us. At the heart of Romans is Romans 8.31. And it says, if God is for us, meaning if God is for us in all of these ways that we learned about in Romans, especially climactically in Romans 5, Romans 8, and then again in Romans 9 through 11, then who can be against us? Promeity, in my view, 
is the doctrine of God as God for us. The passage in which we're finding ourselves in Romans, the epistle at the present time is Romans 8. And I just want to read my translation. It's a fluid translation. When I finally get a translation done of Romans, it won't maybe be exactly what I've been reading because I'm going to expand it immensely. Romans 8.18, for by my accounting, Paul says, the sufferings of the present time of crisis, that is the clashing juncture of the ages as we've understood it, sufferings are not worthy of comparison with the glory that is imminently to be apocalypsed in us. For the creation eagerly awaits the apocalypse of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but through the one who subjected it with the expectation, that is the hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its slavery to decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that all the creation laments and suffers the agony of birth pangs until now. But not only is that so, on top of that, we, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, sigh deeply in ourselves, awaiting eagerly the enjoyment of the full privileges of our sonship, also known as the adoption. That is, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 24, for it is in this hope that we were saved. However, hope that is seen, that is already realized, is not hope. Because who hopes for what one sees or has fully realized? However, hope that is seen, meaning already realized, is not hope. But if we are hoping, verse 25, I kind of repeated 24 twice, but 25, if we are hoping for what we do not presently see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Just as faith seeks understanding, so hope seeks knowledge. The Latin term for hope-seeking knowledge is this word, spes, S-P-E-S, quarens, intellectum. I'm using these Latin terms because sometimes they capture something that we can't quite get in English. Spes, quarens, intellectum. It's a Latin phrase that means hope Seeking knowledge. Jürgen Moltmann calls this the first step towards eschatology. When we do eschatology as a branch of theology, that's what it will be. Adding that, quote, where it is successful, that is, when faith or hope, spes, quarens, seeks intelligence or seeks knowledge, where it is successful in finding knowledge, it becomes docta 
D-O-C-T-A, spes. Docta, spes, Latin for an educated hope. Our hope is an educated hope. It's fanned out in the scriptures. It means to be truly awakened and aware of a hope grounded in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It is this educated hope that we have and hold when we understand Romans, Romans the epistle. And when we perceive the horizon of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally reconciling act of his crucifixion, death, and resurrection from the dead. So our hope, when I think of the word docta, spes, educated hope, what it means to me is that our hope is not magical thinking grounded in fantasy. It is an expectation of a divinely promised reality grounded in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. John Calvin wrote about this, and this makes me think of one of my prime verses that I've had in my heart for over 40 years all throughout my career in the ministry. Jeremiah thirty two nineteen. God, who is great in counsel, says the scripture, is also mighty in his acts or deeds. God, who made the promise, in other words, will be mighty in the fulfillment of it. John Calvin, who is often called the theologian of hope, at least from the Reformation era, wrote the following about faith and hope. This is what he writes. I'm quoting a paragraph of his from the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says, hope is nothing else than the expectation of those things which faith has believed to have been truly promised by God. Thus, faith believes God to be true. This is the phrase that really caught me. Faith believes God to be true. Hope awaits the time when this truth shall be manifested. Then he goes on to say, faith believes that he is our father. Hope anticipates that he will ever show himself to be a father toward us. Faith believes that eternal life has been given to us. Hope anticipates that it will sometime be revealed. Faith is the foundation upon which hope rests. Hope nourishes and sustains faith. For as no one except him who already believes his promises can look for anything from God, so again the weakness of our faith must be sustained and nourished by patient hope and expectation, lest it fail and grow faint. By unremitting, renewing, and restoring Hope invigorates faith again and again with perseverance. In this extract from Calvin, consider what hope is. In these phrases that he uses, he says, quote, hope is expectation. And consider what hope 
does. What hope is? It's expectation. What hope does? Hope awaits. Hope anticipates. Hope nourishes and sustains faith. Hope invigorates faith again and again with perseverance. All these phrases can be lifted from that little paragraph of John Calvin's. What I would have to add to this is that the foundation of our hope is divine promeity. Divine, again, I'll write it up here, promeity. This is a word that is capturing the ultimate doctrine in Romans. There are nine theological functional specialties. We're dealing with a specialty of doctrines when we deal with divine promeity. The foundation of our hope is divine promeity. And we have considered God's promeity, that is, his being for us, both in the intimacy of prayer and in the immensity of cosmology and providence, or the design of the entire universe and the entire course of history. God is for us, even in the intimacy of prayer. Romans 8.26, you see we're also doing an exposition here at the same time of Romans 8. In the same way, says Paul, meaning by the Spirit in and whom we wait by faith, the Spirit, in the same way, the Spirit keeps coming to help us in our weakness insofar as we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit pleads in our behalf with sighs too deep for words, groans too deep for words. And the one, verse 27, God the Father, who searches hearts, that is, who sees what goes on in the thoughts and intents of people's innermost being, also knows the mindset of the Spirit of God. He knows just what he is thinking and intending because he always intercedes for the saints. Please notice God is for us as the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. God's promeity is revealed in the intimacy of prayer, in groanings too deep to utter. And so God is not only for us in the intimacy of prayer, he's also for us in the immensity of the design of the whole universe of proportionate being. And he is for us in a thing called providence, which is God's activity within history. And so promeity in the immensity of cosmology and providence is found in Romans 8.28. On top of that, Paul keeps going on top of that, on top of that, and again and again, and on top of that and beyond that, as we must. Romans 8.28, on top of that, we know for sure, we know certainly, oida is the word, we know with certainty, that for those who love God, now we're going to find out that those who love God are those whom God loves. And in whom the Spirit pours forth the love of God. Those who love God, he is working together in all things, benevolently and beneficently toward the ultimate good. 
by those whom God loves, Paul says, and that's referring back to the clause before, by those whom God loves, I mean those who are the called according to his purpose. They are the called, that is, to belong to Jesus Christ, called into being as a new creation. I want to reiterate a point in our last treatment of Prometi, which is really the first part of a doctrine of divine Prometi, and the printout is on the table already for you. The divine purpose is called prothesin or prothesin in the Greek. P-R-O-T-H-E-S-I-N, prothesin. P-R-O-T-H-E-S-I-N. Prothesin means purpose, according to his purpose. The divine purpose, called prothesin, is also found in 2 Timothy 1.9, where purpose, God's purpose, is linked with his grace, which 2 Timothy 1.9 says, he gave to us, this grace he gave to us, in and by Christ Jesus before the creation of time as measured in eons. Before the creation of time, we were given grace. We were given grace before the creation of time. The grace didn't come on the occasion of our believing. It came before time, before us. And therefore, there's a universality here that must be concluded here. If I didn't believe in universal salvation, I would have been forced to believe it 20 times in the past few years by just reading the scriptures in their depth. This purpose is precisely his determined and resolute, unstoppable determination to sum up everything universally and diachronically in Christ. Again, a verse that's going to be extremely prominent in our upcoming theological treatment of the word. Ephesians 1.11, that word prothesin is found in the context of Ephesians 1.9 through 11. Consequently, those who love God, a.k.a. those whom he calls according to his purpose, are ultimately everybody. Though especially for now, especially for now, those who believe. Believing, we love him. 1 Timothy 4.10 also and 1 Peter 1.8. And those who operate in a faith that works by love, in Galatians 5.6, in Romans fifteen thirteen. Now listen carefully. We are doing theology. What are we doing? We are doing theology so that we can live theology. God's omnipresence includes two items, transcendence and imminence. And by imminence, I mean this time, not I-M-M-I-N-E-N-S-E. I mean I M M. A-N-E-N-C-E, imminence. God is transcendent and imminent. If you want to know a verse for that, Isaiah 57, 15 is ideal for it. 
the theological verse, Isaiah 57, 15. God's omnipresence includes transcendence and imminence. That means simply that he exists on the one hand above, beneath, and beyond all things. That's his transcendence. He also exists in a temporal sense, if we could put it that way, before and after all things. That's his transcendence. On the other hand, he exists and acts within all things. I do not subscribe to what is known as pantheism, in which all things are as God or seen as God. I do subscribe to a form of panentheism, with God being in, imminent within creation, as Emmanuel, God with us that he's with the oppressed, that he's with the lowly of heart, that he's with the depressed, that he's with the addicted, that he is with the suffering, that he is with the sinful, that he is with those in great need of comfort because they are mourning, in great need of righteousness because they hunger and thirst for it, not because they have it. God is imminent, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, as well as transcendent. We're doing theology here. God exists on the one hand above, beneath, and beyond all things, as well as before and after all things. On the other hand, he exists and acts within all things, directing them toward an ultimately beneficent and benevolent end. I'm going to be defining all these terms, not using fancy words for just no reason. An end in which all things will be reconstituted in Christ. Those who love God, then, that phrase, usually used by people who say, I love God, and they don't. That phrase, those who love God, happens to be presently those in whose hearts the love of God has been poured out. They really get no credit for loving God. These are a category which we call the especially those who believe. God is the savior of all human beings, especially those who believe. There is a present category of universal salvation made up of those especially who believe, but there's no distinction between them and others in terms of moral superiority or spiritual even superiority because even the faith is elicited by God. When God chooses to reveal, chooses to reveal his son. Those, these are the, especially those who believe category. That is the lovers of God. The, they are merely the, especially of those who believe category of God's universally saved. The love of God then as used in Romans 5, 5, and we're seeing it coming up again. It's going to come up again with a vengeance or without one in Romans 8, 35 and 38, 39. The love of God is a term that must be interpreted as a plenary genitive. We've already gone through that with the faith of Jesus Christ. Is it faith in Christ? Objective genitive where Christ is the object or is it the faithfulness of Christ, the subjective genitive? The love of God is a plenary genitive, meaning it's both 
the objective genitive, love for God, and subjective genitive, God's love for us. God's gift of his own love that he pours out in our hearts is both the gift of God's love for us that we begin to have confidence in and perceive and apprehend, but it's also God's own love for himself. Our love for God is God's gift to us. And we love him because we begin to know him and we actually love him. It's also God's love for all of create all of mankind. In second Thessalonians three 12. It's also even God's love for the entirety of creation. And it even is a love for those whom we call the dead, but are part of the community of Christ. Even though we call them dead, God calls them living. So it's a plenary genitive, the love of God, meaning that refers both to the love of God for us and our love for God. God's gift of his own love means that the love which we have as a gift from God is God's love for us, subjective genitive, and for all of humanity and all of creation, as well as God's love for himself. God's gift of his love is necessarily universal. There's the controversial part, but it shouldn't be because it's necessity. God's gift of his love is necessarily universal. means it's going to happen and be given to all humanity. Those who love God are presently those who believe. As 1 Peter 1.8 says, we have not seen him, but believing, we love him and rejoice with an unspeakable joy that's full of the expectation of glorification. So those who love God are presently those who believe, but ultimately it is all of humanity in all of its times because God promises to pour his spirit out on all humanity. The lovers of God now are the ones upon whom God has poured out his spirit and the spirit has poured out the love of God in our hearts. But God's promise is ultimately to pour out the spirit on all humanity in all of its times, which will affect the love of God in all human beings so that all humanity ultimately is are the lovers of God. Believe me, this fans out splendidly in the scriptures, elegantly, even exquisitely this doctrine and it plays into the love of God. So then it is necessarily universal. You see, I'm not teaching universalism now just, just on the basic level of, oh, let me prove there's no hell. We've already kicked that thing aside years ago. And we can make it clearer and clearer and clearer as people object more and more and more and misinterpret Matthew 25 and all the passages in which Jesus uses the word Gehenna. But we're finding something in God himself that requires a universal hope and requires universal love. We're, di- we're talking about theology. Don't stop just in realizing that there is no eternal hell. Now, we're going to beat that thing again because, well, doctrinally speaking, it's good to beat a dead horse. 
It's a dead horse, but it needs to be beaten up again and again, and that is the doctrine of eternal hell. Just because it's such a damnable thing and an enslaving doctrine and a doctrine that has no bearing whatsoever in the essence of God, the acts of God, or the scriptures of truth. Nowhere. So, the triune God is in all things, working together for the ultimate good of the entirety of humanity. That's what's being spoken of here. Remember, Paul's aiming here at the primity of God. If God is for us in these ways... Who can be against us? But the question that's unsaid by Paul, that's promoting a unity in Rome, is if God is for us all in this way, then why are you against one another? So then, the triune God is in all things working together for the ultimate good of the entirety of humanity and for all creation. So all of humanity in that sense are the called according to the divine purpose, prothesin or prothesis. All of humanity in all of its times must be those who are called according to God's purpose. Why? Because God's purpose is related to all things being summed up in Christ Jesus. And we'll get to that. When I move from Romans to theological doctrine, we'll get to that. Anakephaliosis, Ephesians 1.10. In Christ, all will be made alive. That's 1 Corinthians 15.22. But listen carefully. This is from the human perspective. From the human perspective, we know that In Christ, all will be made alive. The same all that in Adam died. We know this. Your faith should have laid hold of this a long time ago, if you've been here. But that's from the human perspective. But to God, all are already alive in Christ that were once dead in Adam. To be made alive in Christ is to be made alive with his own life and to participate in his own love as lovers of God. The greatest lover of God is Jesus. And when we share his life, we share his love and we share his love and participate in his love for the father. Because I love my father, he said to his disciples. I'm going from here, meaning to the cross. John fourteen thirty one. So to be made alive in Christ is to be made alive with his own life and to participate in his own love as lovers of God and as lovers of all mankind. Second Thessalonians three twelve. Anyone who says they love God whom they do not see and yet hates a person of human origin, a person, a human being, for any reason, is a hypocrite and a liar. And so, all of creation we love too. God works together in a Trinitarian promity. 
Promiri is Trinitarian. It's Father, Son, and Spirit working together. It's not so much God is making things work together, but that God, the Father, Son, and Spirit are working together in all things. God is the subject here, not all things, in the best translations, in the best manuscripts. Once again, I know this is advanced doctrine. I'm saying things now that don't make sense to you yet. We're going from obscurity to clarity. The things I'm saying that are obscure or even too astonishing to believe or too absurd to believe to you now will be clear as the Holy Spirit makes them eminently still astonishing but very clear. And so God works together in a Trinitarian primity according to a purpose which has to do with the restoration of all things. You should know that by now, Acts 3.21. His beneficence. There's two words that have to do with his goodness. B-E-N-E-F-I-C-E-N-C-E. You might not even be able to see that. Beneficence. And then benevolence. Beneficence. Eventually, God wants to make you the agents of his beneficence and his benevolence. There's slight nuance of meaning between the two, and both have to do with God's goodness. His goodness is another word for his promiety, as we'll see. There's a lot to this. His beneficence lies at the basis of his purpose. For beneficence means that God acts only for the benefit of his creation and never for its detriment. God only works for the detriment of evil and the detriment of sin and the detriment of those things that would be detrimental to us. His beneficence lies at the basis of his purpose and his beneficence means that he acts only for the benefit of his creation and never for its detriment. His benevolence is his immutable intentionality to act in grace. His unchangeable intention to act exclusively in grace toward his creation. That's his benevolence, including all of humanity. Together, God's beneficence and... His benevolence, now these are all going to be reformulated, hopefully, in a, in a theology that right from this pulpit in the future. His benevolence and his beneficence constitute his goodness. Benevolence plus beneficence equals goodness. It's almost impossible for me to consider divine goodness without recalling Dionysius the Areopagite, which was a he was really named Pseudo-Dionysius. He or she, they don't know if it's a woman or a man, but he wrote with that name of Dionysus, or Dionysius, which was one of Paul's converts on Mount Areopagus. But this person was probably in the 4th century, a patristic theologian. This Pseudo-Dionysius I've quoted several times in Rev the Book, and I will do it again today, from the book by Pseudo-Dionysius called The Divine Names, the writer says this, let us move on now to the name good, capital G-O-O-D, 
I kind of like that name for God better than G-O-D. G-O-D doesn't say much. G-O-O-D, good, the good. So let us name, let us move on to the name good, which the sacred writers have preeminently set apart for the supra-divine God. Why supra-divine? Because lots of gods and lords were called divine, but only one supra-divine, the triune God. Matthew 19, 17, and 20, 15, as well as Luke 18, 19. He cites, from all other names, let us set apart that from all other names. They call the divine subsistence itself goodness. And this is the phrase that, again, hammered into my soul. This essential good, capital G-O-O-D, by the very fact of its existence, extends goodness into all things. The very fact that God is benevolent and beneficent demands that he extends his goodness into tapanta, all things. Born out in the scriptures everywhere. I can't even quote the verses tonight, all of them. They will be forthcoming. But another passage that I recalled today regarding God's immutably benevolent purpose, that's his unchanging benevolence. Consider the patristic theologian whose name was John Cassian. J-O-H-N, of course, C-A-S-S-I-A-N. He lived from 360 A.D. to around 430 or 435 A.D. And from his book called Cassian's Collations, he wrote this, quote, God's goodness and love, which he always demonstrates to humanity, parenthesis, for he is never hindered by any offense, that may have him desist from seeking our salvation or deviate from his first intention as though iniquities could have him desist. His goodness could not be described in a more appropriate way with any other simile than that of a man inflamed by the most ardent love for a woman consumed by a passion that is all the more burning the more he realizes that he is despised by her. That's a really good metaphor. In fact, Jeremiah uses it throughout. God, then, this is me, whose name is good, is God for us. His goodness isn't just he's good and you're not. His goodness is his beneficent and benevolent intention toward you in grace. His goodness is another word for his promeity. I think I'll pronounce it promeity from now on. It makes me think of pro-me. The reasoning that's inherent in pseudo-Dionysius and John Cassian, as well as almost all other theologians of the church age in the first nine centuries from Origen to Ariagena, and then again, In fact, I'm busily now trying to trace the doctrine of universal salvation as an Orthodox Christian doctrine throughout all of church history. There always was a strand and a remnant in every generation of what we call church history of believers in the truth of the universal horizon of God's salvation in Christ Jesus. We're now being able, thanks to Ramelli on the first eight centuries, but there's a lot more good stuff coming out now that shows that there was a core of believers that always held that truth all the way through history, all the way through the medieval times, 
all the way through the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries. But there's always been at least a small remnant of believers in the USSJC throughout all the generations of that which is called the church. Thankfully and remarkably, there's a strong resurgence of this reasoning of faith in the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal redemptive, reconciling, and rectifying impact of the cross of Christ in our own time. It's happening. You can watch it unfold here, there, many places. God, whose name is good, then, and this is my doctrine of primity continuing, primity. God, whose name is good, is only for us, exclusively and only. God, whose name is good, is love as to his essence and his essential act. When it says God is love, it doesn't just mean that that's what he is and you're not. It means that he is love as to his act toward all of creation. And so as 2 Thessalonians 2.16 says, our hope is a good hope by grace. It's a good hope because it's rooted in grace. It is a hope in God's goodness that's given to us by God's grace. It is a hope rooted in divine promity, in the knowledge that God is none other than God for us. You cannot separate God as a name from God for us as his name. And Jesus, his name means Yahweh saves. The last word is Jesus, not hell. And God's judgment is his creative justice that gives perpetrators of evil righteousness and victims of evil justice. And victimhood and perpetration of evil run through all of us. Often victims become perpetrators, perpetrators, victims. Sometimes victims released from their victimhood are worse perpetrators of evil on the perpetrators than the perpetrators were on the victims. The line runs through us all. But God creates justice where there is no justice and creates righteousness where there is no righteousness. And the Universal last judgment is only the second to the last thing in eschatology. The last thing is the new creation of all things and the new beginning for all creation. A, an endless new beginning. Now with regard to Romans 8.28 specifically, I'm not just skipping this verse. Some New Testament manuscripts have God as the subject. For the verb sunergeo, sunergeo, which means work together. We get the word synergy from it. Sunergeo, S-U-N-E-R-G-E-O, sunergeo. God is the subject, and he's the one that does the sunergeo, the synergizing of everything. In the phrase panta sunerge, panta, that's all things, sunerge, working together. That means that God himself is imminent in all things, and he's working all things together for the ultimate benefit of those who love God 
and those who are the called according to God's purpose. So some manuscripts actually put it this way. The Holman Christian Standard Bible actually has it in the notes. God works together in all things. The togetherness isn't all things together. The togetherness is the Father and the Son and the Spirit together in promeity, directing all things in history and all things in the whole cosmic design of the vast universe together, working those things, directing them toward the ultimate good of all of humanity and all of creation. The idea in that translation is that God is imminent, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, within all things cosmologically and also within history, directing everything to an end, which is to the ultimate, I would even say the glorious benefit of all created beings. God sees not as man sees. God is present to the future in Christ. God is present to the future of Christ. Eschatology isn't about your future. It's about the future of Jesus Christ, who embodies all humans, including you. God is present to the future of Christ, when and where Christ is all, and in all of humanity. So God, who is present to God making alive all in Christ, he's already present to that which is a future reality to us. So to God, all of humanity is already alive in Christ. I can prove that too. So God sees all human, human beings in all of their times as in Christ. Now, before you object, and of course you will, not, not you maybe here, but there is objections arising. I even have a little vision of question marks coming up in your little hearts. You know, the light bulb over the head, the question in the heart. And of course, there'll be objections from objectors. Objectors abound today. But before you object and say that this sounds heretical, consider what Jesus said in his commentary on Exodus 3.6. Jesus did a commentary on it in Luke 20.38 where Yahweh announced himself to Moses as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He was very emphatic. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus interpreted this to imply that God, that to God, all, including Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, long dead from human standpoint, were alive. How do you answer Moses and Elijah standing with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration if they're dead? Jesus interpreted this as to imply that to God, all, including Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose records of their deaths are recorded in the scriptures. How does he say that to God they're living in Luke twenty thirty eight and not dead? That's how Jesus interpreted that. To the Sadducees. So you may object and say that that's absurd because it's obvious that the vast percentage of human beings are dead. And observably so. But to God who sees as man cannot see, all are living. I'll go with that. To be living 
is only attributable to being in Christ. Because if you're not in Christ, you're not living. But if you're in Christ, you've been made alive with Christ's own life. To be living is only attributable to being in Christ by whom God conquered death. So the lovers of God to God are all human beings. To God, all are lovers of God, even as to God, all are living. All who are living have to be living because they share the life of Christ. And to share the life of Christ is to share the love of Christ for God the Father. So to God, all are living. You say, that's a crazy way to think. Yes, it is. And it's, you know what it does away with? The boredom and the ennui and the self-absorption that is rampant in this culture of narcissism in this day in which people are taking their own lives purely out of deadly boredom. So, to be lovers of God, to God, is to be all human beings, all of whom can also be considered Israel. In the sense that Israel is promised that he, she, will love the Lord, his, her, God with all of his, her. Why am I saying his, her? Because in Christ there's neither male nor female. There's neither L, nor G, nor B, nor T, nor Q, nor U, nor R, nor S, nor T, nor W, nor X, nor Y, or Z. All are in the Alpha, all are in the Omega, and Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. So judge all day long if you want, but the judge is the Savior. So then. And people wonder why the insights are not coming to them. And part of it is because their own judgmentalism prevents and is an obstacle to further insight. So, all human beings can be considered as Israel in the sense that Israel is promised that he, she, will love the Lord, his, her, God, with all of his, her heart, all of his, her soul, all of his, her mind, and all of his, her being. Whereas Moses said to his brother-in-law. Yeah, Moses talked to his brother. You know what he said to his brother-in-law? He said, come with us because Yahweh's planning good things for Israel. And you're going to get the good things God's planning for Israel. And I love it. In Numbers 20, 10, 29, he says, Yahweh has promised good things to Israel. Read it. Numbers 10, 29. You know, Moses had a brother-in-law. Because Moses had a father-in-law, and the father-in-law had a son, and the son was his brother-in-law. And so he said to him, he said, come on, Hodab, or whatever your name is, Hobab, something like that. Come on, come with us, because the Lord has promised good things to Israel. And so, how about the Israelites? You know what they sang about Yahweh, the Lord God? When they were restored to the land in 516 B.C. and they started to rebuild the temple, this was their song. For he is good. His faithful love to Israel endures forever. That was their song. Ezra records it. How about beyond that? I love to go beyond that. Psalm 145.9b. The second half. Listen to this verse. If you didn't get anything out of tonight's message, tack this on your fridge. Yahweh is good 
to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. You say God is good. That means he gives people stuff to eat and he gives you provides a a roof over there. No, when it says God is good, it means God is savior to all. And he is compassion rests on all that he's made. So God is imminent. I am a N E N T within all of creation in all of its times and in history in all of its seasons, directing all things to a glorious salvific liberating and transformative end, which is creation's new endless beginning. That God is imminent within all of creation and within the course of history does not mean that he's not also transcendent. He is also transcendent. Plato and his philosophers believed that God was only transcendent and not imminent. The Hebrew prophets believed him to be transcendent and imminent. And the best way to describe this, that idea of God's omnipresence, that he is also transcendent, existing as love above, beyond, and beneath his creation, and before and after time and history. He is that too. But as Isaiah 57, 15 says, I live in a high and holy place. That's God's transcendence. And with the oppressed and lowly of spirit. And with the oppressed and lowly of spirit. That's God's imminence. Emmanuel, God with us. To revive the spirit of the lowly. And to revive the heart of the oppressed. That's God's imminence. So in this one declaration of Yahweh, we hear two things. One, Yahweh is transcendent. He lives in a high and holy place. Above creation, beyond creation. Before creation, beneath creation. Underneath are the everlasting arms. Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-seven. So, or 3227, my mind's slipping. What are we doing here and now? We're doing theology. Yahweh is transcendent. He lives in a high and holy place. But listen to this. Yahweh is also imminent. He lives with the oppressed and lowly of spirit. That's Jesus. He eats with sinners, publicans. Why? Because he is anticipating the universal messianic banquet. That's why. These two elements of the omnipresence of God, imminence and transcendence. So what are we doing here and now, tonight? What are we doing? We're doing theology. A theology of universal hope. Again, Romans 8.28, we'll move to a close here. Romans 8.28 speaks of God's working together in all things for the ultimate benefit of all, which is according to his purpose. Again, purpose is prothesis. The Jewish saints in Rome heard one thing. 
They may have discerned this term as an oblique reference to the showbread or the bread of God's purpose or intention. It's called in the Latin panes propositionis. It's called in the Hebrew the showbread or the bread of God's purpose. And so the Jewish Christians would have heard that in the word prothesis, God's purpose refers to the bread of God's purpose or the showbread. God's purpose is his salvific intention, first for Israel, to the Jew first, but also for all of humanity. This is, again, this prothesis is connoted in the showbread, which were 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. According to Joseph Thayer in his lexicon, the loaves were, quote, offered to God every Sabbath and separated into two rows. They lay for seven days upon a table placed in the sanctuary or anterior portion of the tabernacle and afterward of the temple. And so the showbread, as you probably read about, Hebrews 9, 2 and other places, is ultimately a type of which Jesus Christ is the fulfillment or antitype. His flesh is the bread that he gives for the life of the world. John 6.51. Please notice that. His flesh is the bread that he gives for the life of the world. John 6.51. Promity is not just a theological doctrine then. See, we're making an advance here. Promity is not just a theological doctrine. It's specifically Christological, too, having to do with Christ. Please notice in John 6.51 that little phrase, for the life of the world. The verb form of prothesis, prothesis was already deployed by Paul in Romans 3.25. He uses the verbal form of the noun prothesis because in Romans 3.25, now stay with me just for a couple more minutes. He says, Jesus is called he whom God displayed publicly, presented as showbread, in other words. And the word is proetheto, the verbal form of prothesis. So there, and then it goes on to say, as the means of expiation through the faithfulness that climaxed with his blood. Romans 3.25. So there, Jesus is the showbread, the fulfillment of the type of the showbread, who embodies all of the 12 tribes of Israel, and who is himself shown and presented in his death by crucifixion and his resurrection as the means and the place of the expiation of the sin of the world or the putting away of the sin of the world, otherwise known as the mercy seat. In that verse, Romans 3.25, both the body and the blood of Christ are featured, which are represented in the Eucharist in the form of unfermented fruit of the vine and unleavened bread, and we just celebrated the Eucharist. The Gentile Christians in Rome heard something else, though, but it wasn't contrary to the showbread idea. The Gentile Christians in Rome would probably have heard that word purpose, prothesis, in a way that was used by Aristotle and by Polybius 
These Roman Christians would have understood Socrates and Plato and Socratic dialogue. In fact, I think Doug Campbell was right to say that Romans 1, 1 to the first four chapters of Romans were Socratic. They were a dialogue. And the people would have understood very well that Paul was in dialogue with a teacher who opposed his gospel. And he was essentially obliterating that. And it's amazing how many Christians take the side of the guy that Paul obliterated. But that is something we will visit again. And I visited it while I was in Florida many times over while studying Galatians. But the Gentile Christians of Rome, in hearing the word prophesis, would have probably heard it by the use of Aristotle and by another historian named Polybius, P-O-L-Y-B-I-U-S. He was a Greek historian who actually wrote a 40-volume history of Rome. And that word prothesis was used by him. Five of those 40 volumes are extant. That means they're still in print and you can read them today. Polybius, he was a military historian. And he lived around 200 B.C. up till 118 B.C. So they were aware of Polybius' use of the word prothesis, as well as a later use by Biographer and philosopher Plutarch, you've probably heard of Plutarch. He lived in A.D. 46 to 120. Prothesis referred simply in those writers to a plan, a purpose, or a design. Now, to me, of momentous importance to the doctrine of God's universal promeity is the use of this word prothesis in Ephesians 1.11 where it's linked to the mystery of God's universal intention, the mystery of God's universal intention, his Christological and soteriological intention to sum up all things in all of their times in Christ, Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. All of this speaks of divine primity or of the truth that God is none other than God for us and that Jesus is the human personification of universal divine promeity. Jesus is the human personification of universal divine promeity. And of course he is divine also. And that's takes us to the next step. There is a Trinitarian promeity a providential promeity, a cosmological promeity, an incarnational promeity, a predestinational promeity, a justificational promeity. God is for us in so many ways it's impossible to count, and if he's for us in all these ways, then who can be against us? Who can be against us? It is God who justifies. It is Christ who died. Who condemns? Who ultimately will condemn us when all the who's of the universe will ultimately be reconciled to God? There's some stuff to think about tonight. This will be all in print. You can go over it and read it if you want. You can read it together as husband and wife, or brother and sister, or friend and friend, and then get even more upset with me. But let's take a couple moments. Father... Lead us and lead me in my study as we continue in this all-important understanding of who you are and even of what you are as goodness, 
as beneficence and benevolence, even as love. Lead us. And we ask this in Christ's name.